Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This, in fact, is our new American moment. There has never been a better time to start living the American dream. No matter where you've been or where you've come from, this is your time. If you work hard, if you believe in yourself, if you believe in America, then you can dream anything. You can be anything. And together, we can achieve absolutely anything. Is America really a place where if you work hard, you can do anything? Our myth of, about ourselves is that we're a country, we're the Horatio Alger country, we're the country where anybody can become president, anybody can make their way up through hard work and, and um, enterprise. Um, and uh, we can see, you know, that we have data. It doesn't happen very often. It happens, in fact, very rarely. Um, and we can also compare ourselves with other countries. And it turns out at this point, uh, among wealthy countries, we have less social mobility than just about anybody else. We're a place where um, who your parents were, what your social class at birth was, is more determinative of, of what your life is going to be like than, than pretty much anywhere else. And, and it appears that we've become less mobile over time, too, uh, that, the, that the chance of, of making your way up the social ladder has gone down over the generations. Today, I want to talk about a near-ancient problem. Like, let me read you something from Percy Shelley in 1821. Quote, To him that hath, more shall be given. And from him that hath not, the little that he hath shall be taken away. One hundred years later, Richard Whiting and Raymond Egan released one of the biggest bangers of 1921. There's nothing sure, uh, the rich get rich and the poor get children. In the meantime... In between time, ain't we got fun? Yeah, inequality has been around for a while. But today, it's dramatic. Really dramatic. You've heard those statistics people like to quote about how the world's richest people have some inconceivably vast amount of the world's resources compared to the rest of us. Well, a whole lot of those world's richest people live in the United States. Some of them got their money because they worked for it. But some of them got their money because, well, their parents or grandparents or even great-grandparents worked for it. 
Maybe you're okay with that. Or maybe not. Either way, what if I told you that this situation was kind of a choice? Made possible only because very few people who don't benefit from this status quo are paying attention. That massive fortunes are passed from one generation to the next largely by entirely legal means. And that if we actually started to collect the bill we're due from these ultra-high net worth individuals, we could take steps to solve the climate crisis, pay for healthcare, and have a more just and equitable society. Today, we're going to look directly at the money and what that means for the rest of us. So, who is inherited wealth? And as usual, pardon my grammar. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power through the stories of people who have it. Today, it's inherited wealth, which, to be fair, is a pretty normal thing. There's nothing inherently wrong with inheritances, no pun intended. Your parents should be able to leave you their home if they own a home, or their life savings if they have that. But we're not talking about your parents, probably. Unless your parents have tens of millions or even billions of dollars. When we talk about inherited wealth, let's be clear. If you have it, you probably know it. What we've got in the United States today is a system for passing extraordinary levels of inequality from one generation to another, virtually in perpetuity. That's James Henry. He's a senior advisor at the Tax Justice Network and Global Justice Fellow at Yale. I want to start with how America pays its bills. I like to think of taxation as a duty, uh, paying taxes as uh, not just a, a debt that you owe to uh, the state. Uh, that's one way of, that's a conventional way of thinking about it. But I think it's also a, a kind of a shared obligation for people who have a kind of commons to take care of. Yeah, things like roads, public schools, the military-industrial complex. We all enjoy these things and the benefits we derive from them either directly or indirectly. So who's paying for all this stuff? If you go back to the Middle Ages, uh, you see that the nobility in Britain was exempt from taxes completely in, in the, under the feudal system. And the peasants had to not only fight the wars, but they also had to pay all of the taxes. And so that's the kind of system that we've been drifting toward. I personally don't want to live in the Middle Ages. The issue comes down to, well, if, if ordinary people are going to be burdened with all of the costs of government, and the rich are going to get off scot-free, that strikes people as unfair. I mean, duh, it's fucking unfair, but aren't taxes like a percentage, and don't people who have more pay more? Under the current system in which rich people have larger and larger arsenal of devices, all kinds of technology, a sort of a global haven network, a lot of big law firms and accounting firms that specialize in devising new chicanery to help affluent people avoid big corporations, avoid taxes. And, you know, so a larger and larger share of the tax burden has been falling upon people who are in the middle class who really can't avoid paying payroll taxes or sales taxes. And so that's part of the problem that we're dealing with. So, like, when you get your paycheck, which is how you are compensated for your labor, you don't really get to determine how much of it goes to taxes. That money is just taken out. But wealthy people acquire money in different ways from the rest of us. So for me, wealth or capital is always the combination of something or interest or idea, a claim, that we then code 
in the law. We use property rights and trust and, and collateral law and, 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 and uh, uh, contract law to finagle a wealth asset, a capital asset out of it. That's Katerina Pastor. And I'm not just saying this because I want my podcast to sound legitimate, but she's literally a total genius. Anyway, as any billionaire knows, lots of things have value. Mansions, companies, Pokemon cards. But one of the ways that wealthy people get money is by transforming a thing into an asset, using the magic of the law. So the law can be used to organize um, things so that people have access to certain resources. It can also be organized in such a way that some people can exclude everybody else from access to their own assets and everything in between. And depending on how we do this, who has access to the legal coding to make sure that they can protect their assets against too many others, or saying people should actually share more things, depending on how we do this, we can have a relatively more equal or unequal um, society. Depending on how we do this. We means all of us. And do this means make policy choices. The law is a system that produces outcomes. And taxation is a legal system that also produces outcomes. Outcomes like a more equal or more unequal society. What's key here is that both of these systems are things we created. They aren't like the laws of physics. They aren't absolute truths of the universe. But just like physics and the absolute truths of the universe, the law that Katerina Pastor is talking about is just as generally unknown, just as hard to understand, and just as consequential. The law that I'm talking about is mostly what we can also call a private law. It's property rights, it's contracts, it's the trust, it's uh, corporate law, um, things like that. Otherwise known as the laws you never think about, but which truly craft the world we live in. But if it's magic, can't we just stop believing it and it'll stop working? What is the law and what is the state? It's, it's really um, the centralization of our collective means of coercion, if you want. Centralization of our collective means of coercion. That sounds fascinating and terrifying, but what does it really mean? Well, it means that the law is backed by the full power of a state. In this case, the United States of America. Or the individual states that comprise the United States, which is important. Coercion means the threat of violence, or in a contemporary context, the threat of incarceration. Basically, we can't just stop believing in the law. We collectivize our means of coercion, and then we create an institutional structure around that. That's what we call the state. And then the big question becomes, who can use this power and under what conditions? That's basically what the law does. Laws are important. I'm glad that it's difficult to murder or sell rotten meat. And laws are what enable us to have a society that we can all live in together, at least somewhat peacefully. But the law is also kind of fundamentally anti-democratic. It's not unfair to say that the law is a tool of the wealthy, a tool which some people have more access to than others, like a hammer on a high shelf. Is it that people who have resources are simply more likely to have the means to hold on to them, with these means being primarily legal, the process holding over time, or, or what's going on here? Yeah, of course, you, if you have more resources to start with, you're probably better off. I don't want to deny that. But what you can also see over time is that different people figure out that the law really matters and that some tweaks in the law could really help them. So a lot of the competition that's happening is actually competition over the legal position that you take. It's not that the same class or, or always survives. The, the beauty of 
legally coded wealth is really that the legal coding matters and if you have access to the legal coding for assets that have a future you might um, get ahead of the game in relationship to those who have always dominated in the past. So how does this relate to America paying its bills? Let's go back to James Henry. Well, I think there are a couple different uh, ways in which uh, inequality has been fostered by our current tax system. One is, you know, the way we actually discriminate between the taxation of so-called capital gains on property, including, you know, stocks and bonds and also real estate, versus ordinary income that people generate by going to jobs. Tax rates on dividends and capital gains have traditionally been lower than those on labor income. That legal coding Katerina Pastora was talking about, that's exactly what creates stocks, bonds, and property. And it's that legal coding which determines how these things are treated by our system of taxation, which is, of course, also a legal system. A system that is the product of choices that largely benefit the wealthy. And so in the first instance, there's the, the fact that the flows that are going to different elements of the population are taxed at different rates based on the kinds of sort of biological provenance and uh, economic provenance that they've had. There's another piece of this, too. The top 1% of the population owns about 50% of all stocks. I think the top 10%, it's about 80%. You know, those folks are, are not taxed on the so-called unrealized uh, capital gains uh, that they see in the stock market. And over the last year, for example, we've seen billionaires like Bezos benefit enormously from the fact that none of the, the, the gains that he's realized, something like $4 trillion of unrealized capital gains by the top 650 billionaires in the United States. So that's one element of wealth inequality, and then that feeds into the wealth inequality that gets passed on. Okay, but like, this is all already pretty complicated. And I'm about to introduce another thing. Instead of inherited wealth, we almost call this episode Trusts and Estates. Why? On top of that, you have this whole arsenal of trusts and estate planning, which comes into play. And there are devices that you know, ordinary Americans will never even hear about from their, their tax advisors or their tax attorneys because they're just too fancy uh, for them to use. But uh, the kinds of irrevocable trusts, structures that people have set up, these, uh, you know, sort of self-settled trusts, asset protection trusts that are now deployed in 17 states in the United States. So who's using these trusts and doing this estate planning? Well, I think they're fair to say it's, it's the very top echelon of people. I think, you know, last year, for example, uh, uh, the total number of people who are actually subject to the estate tax in the United States was a few thousand at most. And uh, those who are subject to estate taxes, you know, the sums involved could be quite considerable. You know, people at this level, I think, are often transnational in citizenship. So they can be citizens of nowhere for tax purposes. That's kind of the dream. But they're the ones who are basically investing heavily in the qualified personal residence trusts and the irrevocable life trusts and the, the grantor retained annuity trusts, these things that are fancy ways of avoiding all taxes forever. So that not only you, you have insulated yourself as the grantor, but you've also insulated future generations in your family from taxation with some of these vehicles that are available. 
Insulated from taxation just means wealthy people not paying as much as everyone else for the things that we all enjoy. Remember that. But anyway, where are people setting up these trusts, like the Cayman Islands? There's now kind of a race to the bottom among U.S. states to establish similar kinds of so-called asset protection trusts. They have a kind of a dubious distinction in the law, and it's not clear yet. The Supreme Court hasn't really ruled on many of the most important issues with respect to these things. So we just don't know how foolproof they will be. But Alaska kind of started this, and then South Dakota and Nevada got into the business. Delaware has been in it for a long time. But they are basically competing on the basis of anonymity, no uh, or very low taxes on anybody who moves their trusts there. And then they have enormous local sets of advisors and banks and trustees and lawyers who are basically specializing in servicing these things. So there's a kind of a game afoot to have the most permissive (laughs) regulations. It's a race to the bottom, meaning a race to have the regulations which most favor extremely wealthy people. And it's happening right here at home in the United States. If you go back to, let's say, 1980, when I first started studying this stuff, there were maybe 15 havens around the world of any significance, and they were pretty much all offshore. Places like Panama, Bahamas, the Channel Islands, Switzerland to some extent. But over time, what you've seen is that the traditional onshore havens like the United States and some European countries have moved to the top. And the United States, in fact, now has at least 49 states that offer LLCs, There's the 17 states that offer asset protection trusts. Unlike Europe, there is no beneficial ownership registration. So you can't really tell who owns a company or a trust or an LLC in a specific state like New York or Florida or Delaware. There's just a lot more secrecy. This enormous global haven industry that's kind of come home to the United States. We have the world's largest accounting firms and law firms, most sophisticated tax practice and I would say money laundering practices are are available right here in our own backyard. Part of that is just the market forces that brought the United States to the, the top because it's a big financial center. But it's also because of the legal community and, uh, and because of the evolution of our laws and, uh, and this basic race to the bottom among the states. And we've seen state after state trying to become slightly better than the, than the next one in terms of offering anonymity, really inexpensive corporate planning and tax planning, and some of these trust vehicles that I've described. So just how much money are we not collecting taxes on? What's the effect of this system? I think there's a big opportunity cost. First of all, we're not collecting taxes on the order of 40 to 50 trillion dollars offshore that's not taxed by anybody. Just to be clear, according to TJN, which is the Tax Justice Network, approximately 40 to $50 trillion of assets held by high net worth individuals are stashed away globally. I googled what the GDP of the entire world is, and according to the World Bank, it was $87 trillion in 2019. I am not an economist, and these things are not the same, but the point is that 40 to $50 trillion is a lot of money. So one is just lost tax revenue. It means that if you have a certain share of public expenditure that has to be borne by taxpayers, you're going to finance it either with inflation, ultimately, in the form of printing money, like we've been doing for the last year and a half, at least, 
or you're going to finance it with taxation. So the, the tax burden gets distributed for these necessary social expenditures that are unavoidable to the middle class and the poor. So that's one obvious injustice that comes out of this. And over time, that adds up to a big explanation for the soaring rates of inequality of income and wealth that we've seen. This is complicated, yes, but think of it the simple way. It's all about greed and all about wealthy people not wanting to pay their fair share. And that means something today, in an era when, according to The Guardian, the top 5% of Americans own three quarters of the entire financial wealth of the United States, while the bottom 60% possesses less than 1%. Sit with that for a second. We'll be back after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. Today, we're talking about inherited wealth. Just like the connection between housing and homelessness, the connection between inherited wealth and inequality is both very obvious and extremely complicated. We are a society where even at the most fundamental things like life or death, we're no longer living in the same world. That's Paul Krugman, a Nobel Prize winning economist and somebody who has an incredible grasp on how our economy works or doesn't work. We live in a society where people have vastly unequal quality of life, vastly unequal access to resources, in many ways just live in different material social universes in a way that was not always the case. About every aspect of life is now extremely, extremely divided and with both people living in levels of misery that are hard to hard to rationalize in a country as rich as ours and people living in, in a a stratosphere that really didn't exist a few generations ago. So how do we get here? As a culture, surely we want an equitable society, right? Well, it's it's a step-by-step process, but if there were, I mean, the, the crucial moment is political. Let's be frank, the, the passage of the Civil Rights Act was a watershed because we had had before an awkward coalition between basically poor southern states and uh, northern progressives in support of pretty high taxes on the wealthy, pretty strong support for unionization, other things that that helped keep us a relatively middle-class society. With the passage of the Civil Rights Act, well, a large number of people who had an economic interest in continuing to have progressive policies broke with the Democratic Party because they they didn't want equality of uh, uh, on racial grounds. And then that led to a series of changes. Uh, the political environment uh, shifted. You started to see passage of legislation, hu- you know, huge cuts in tax rates at the top. The top tax rate was 91% under that socialist Dwight Eisenhower. That's a joke, by the way. President Eisenhower was not a socialist. And uh, now people go into paroxysms of rage if you talk about raising it back up to 39.6%. You saw an end to effective antitrust regulation of corporations, saw a basically a blind eye turn to violations of labor law that have allowed corporate America to largely crush the union movement. So all of these things follow. It's the, the, if you wanted to ask, you know, when, when, what is the moment of pivot politically? It's probably the 60s and the civil rights movement. And, but then the actual policy changes have come step by step over the, the decades that followed. Which gets us to the present day, 
Another economist, a guy named Thomas Piketty, figured out that contemporary inequality is comparable to the period just before the French Revolution, which is when they brought out the guillotines and decapitated the wealthy elite in the streets of Paris. Cool. Thomas Piketty, you wrote, uh, you called his book Capital in the 21st Century a Eureka book. What's the Eureka moment that that book offers and how did it change your thinking? Yeah, I've been worrying about inequality for a long time. So the fact that that he was documenting extreme inequality, that didn't come as a surprise. What he told me that I hadn't fully realized was that we were seeing a shift in the basis. For the last 40 years of rising inequality, much of what's been driving it has been earned, I guess that's earned with quotation marks around it, but it's, it has been CEO bonuses and, and big paychecks, but not as in the Gilded Age, uh, not ownership of stock and, and profits, but that increasingly that is becoming. We're now, we're now reached the stage where the income from, from assets is becoming a big deal and where inherited wealth is becoming a big deal. There wasn't that much inherited wealth in America 20 years ago because we come out of a long period of being a fairly middle-class society and we were, there weren't that many rich, extremely rich people. Now there are, and increasingly wealth is coming into the hands of their descendants rather than people who made their own way. So that was revelatory. That was kind of, oh, we really are headed back not just to a highly unequal society, but to something that looks like the Gilded Age, or Piketty talks about the, the Belle Epoque in France in the late 19th century, which may be an even better model of a kind of a aristocratic inherited wealth society. Not the America I thought we were supposed to be, but what we are increasingly becoming. The Gilded Age, of course, was only gilded for some people. If you'd been alive during the Gilded Age, or Belle Epoque, unless you're secretly a French aristocrat, you probably would have been doing terrible manual labor or giving birth to dozens of children. Remember that song I played you at the beginning of the episode? One of the lyrics is, the rich get richer, the poor get kids. The thing about wealth is that once you have it, it tends to grow. Private wealth tends to grow, and there's some glitches and some people lose some wealth, of course, right? But by and large, it grows over time. I would argue mostly because of the legal protections, Tuma Piketty thinks there are supply and demand and technological issues at hand, and simply the fact that once you have a lot of wealth and you reinvest and you reinvest, you will get more wealth. Probably there's a combination of the two. So absent some control, it will grow. And so after World War II, people were relatively conscientious about the fact that there had been a depression and there had been mechanisms before the depression that led to a crash and tried to tame the beast, if you want. They put some controls in place, capital controls. Many countries had sort of restrictions on using law in certain ways, but all these constraints were relaxed again in the, started already in the early 1970s, but in a big way in the 1980s with Thatcher and Reagan and the idea that markets are free and can self-regulate. Typically people didn't talk about the fact that markets on our scale, national and global scale, need law to function. So that side of the private law was ignored, which is saying we're freeing the markets, they do everything themselves. You take these restraints away and, and, and those who know how to code capital can use it to accumulate wealth again. And then we of course hit a crisis in 2008, but in this crisis then the central banks intervened and the finance being the most important source of wealth today was essentially protected by another social intervention um, where the central banks effectively socialized the loss and protected the value of assets in the markets. 
There's something important here. One of the criticisms of increasing taxes on the rich is that it's socialism. But then what do you call the response to the 2008 financial crisis? Pastor said socializing the loss. What does that mean? The financial wealth that we have created is always built on the notion that the future will be at least as good as the present, if not better. Especially when we use debt finance, we always have to think about how much return we can make in the future to pay back our creditors and still make some gain. It's always a future expectation. When you begin to have doubts about the future, you will try to sell your assets. You want to convert them into cash so you can just lock in past gains. If too many people do this at the same time, the assets that they are selling are losing their value. If the central banks then step in and say, okay, you can't find a private buyer of your assets, we'll buy them at face value, then you basically are socializing the losses. It's because what is the central bank using? It's using basically its own resources, which is a collective resource. Let me translate collective resource. She means our money, your money, my money, your grandma's money, my grandma's money. The central banks were created to issue and manage our money, and they're stepping in and issuing money to buy assets that in the market, if left on its own, would crash. You would have a fire sale and you would crash the entire financial system if in doubt. If they step in and say, we buy this now, we give you this money, that's a way of socializing the losses of a system that had too many expectations on the future which could no longer be fulfilled. And then society says, well, we will fulfill them anyhow. So you get the cash. We take the assets and hopefully in the future we can sell them again at some price. So to be clear, all of our money was used to stabilize the financial system that largely benefits the wealthy, but which all of us depend on. If we just talk inequality again for a moment and just say so the levels of inequalities are really startling, especially after, let's say, COVID crisis, you had the, you put an entire economy under hold and you do this worldwide, basically, and the stock markets go through the roofs and the tech company owners make a ton of money in between and everybody else suffers and loses their job. That's something that is politically difficult, I think it's morally and normatively deeply problematic. But given that a major crisis like this increases the disparities rather than serve as a correction. So in the 1930s, the depression was an equalizer. The people lost their assets. I mean, those at the bottom lost more than everybody else. They were really unemployed and on the street. But even the wealthy really lost, and then you restart. You also have a different political bargain when you restart. So as long as we buffer the system and keep it up and running because we're so afraid of the crash, and I am about afraid about the crash. I don't want to say I want a crash, but without a major self-correction that comes either through a crash, through fundamental competitive forces, or through taxation or some, some, some structural change, the system will reinforce the kind of trends that we are in and I think become even more unequal and politically, I think, even more unsustainable than it currently is. Here's a supposedly very rich man before he became president and started talking about the United States being a place where everything is possible. On the economy, I will outline reforms to add millions of new jobs and trillions in new wealth that can be used to rebuild America. A number of these reforms that I will outline tonight will be opposed by some of our nation's most powerful special interests. That's because these interests have rigged 
our political and economic system for their exclusive benefit. Believe me, it's for their benefit. Trump did nothing to make it better, and even rigged it some more. But at least he knew it was rigged, right? Just like he was right to say that Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson should remain broken up, he was also right to say the United States is largely set up to benefit the wealthy. So it does seem that what we have now is actually somewhat dysfunctional in terms of capitalism. Well, I think, you know, it's, 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 um, it's really an, uh, the, um, an incarnation of the logic of capitalism. I say basically from the beginning, it's always using a social resource, the legal system, to create greater privileges and powers for some rather than others. So that's, that's been built into it. It's just it has been scaled up. And, you know, what is also so interesting that the very essence of the assets that are the most important wealth holding assets today, financial assets, all bets on the future that exist only in the law because they exist only and are viable bets on the future because they're ultimately enforceable or convertible into state money in times of crisis. So in that sense, it's a system, you could say it's either a symbiosis or it's maybe a parasitic system on our social resources. It works quite well for the capital holders and you know that's a cynical answer of course but i think sort of the cost i think is our is the inequality it's the political system if the trust in the legal system and the law as a governance device erodes that system is no longer sustainable and i'm not sure whether the capitalist the asset holders themselves realize how dependent they are ultimately on large parts of the population believing in the legitimacy of the system after all Wealth is dependent on all of us believing in the legitimacy of the system that enables it to flourish. But like we talked about earlier, the status quo we have now is the result of political choices and policy choices. And there are people who are making those choices. People who supposedly represent all of us. I asked Paul Krugman about it. In 2014, you wrote about a Republican roadmap which called for the complete elimination of taxes on interest, dividends, capital gains, and estates. So basically, someone living solely off of their inherited wealth would have owed no federal taxes at all. What, what was going on there? Well, if you ask, it's one of these questions where you ask, who stands to benefit from that kind of policy? The intellectual case for it is hopeless. There's absolutely no evidence that low taxes on capital gains do great things for the economy. And even... Econ 101 would say that, hey, letting people inherit wealth without any taxation is, you're just encouraging people to be the idle rich. Not that that's the most important thing in the world, but why on earth would you think that that was a, a good idea from even from a purely economic point of view? But the line we use all the time in this area is up in Sinclair, difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. And if you actually ask, you know, who, who pays for the think tanks that that come up with these proposals? Who employs former Republican congressmen when they, when they leave to cash in on their term in office? Then you understand where all of this is coming from. So is it time to go all French Revolution again? And turning back to history, uh, is it time to set up the guillotines again? You know, the guillotines can do only so much. What is so interesting about the guillotines, when you, when you chop up a couple of heads, the system comes creeping back, right? The guillotine who I mentioned before, he wrote another book, Capital and Ideology. And in this book, he shows he was surprised how fast the levels of inequality in France that had been present prior to the revolution came back after the revolution. 
it was within a matter of decades. So you chop up a couple of heads of the kings and rulers, and then the next generation, the bourgeoisie, of course, they were able to basically transform these assets into legal claims. They wrote the laws about which things would have property recognition under the civil code and claim those assets. So I think that the issue is not the guillotine. You can change the people, you know, just think that corporations can live forever. We are all mortals. We have sort of the, but corporations can be set up with an in, indefinite lifespan. And so we have to think more about the structures of the system than, than, than bringing out the guillotines, I'd say. Ugh, boring. One of the great achievements, if I can say, of economic scholarship has been the discovery that the middle class society I grew up in was actually created. It didn't exist. If you go back to America in the 1920s, it was an extremely unequal place. But America by the 50s was not. America by the 50s was a place which had uh, much higher taxes on the rich, much stronger representation of workers. How did that happen? Well, it happened fast. It was really a, a political revolution that took place during the New Deal and uh, to some extent during World War II. And we didn't actually have to guillotine any aristocrats to get there. All we had to do was have a really massive political movement demanding a fairer society. And you know, there's every reason to hope that we can do that again. So far, we've managed to achieve, when we, we've achieved very good things for ordinary Americans, we've managed to do it without political violence. So how do we do that? We'll be back after this. Welcome back. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the final episode of our third season. Before the break, Paul Krugman was talking about how we could fix this inherited wealth inequality issue and maybe fix it without the guillotines, which is a lot less fun, but let's hear him out. So there are effective metaphorical guillotines that we can be using. Oh, it's, it's actually amazingly... I think if we ever get there, you'd be surprised at how relatively easy it, it is. I mean, it... it if we look at things like the rise in tax rates that took place under the New Deal and on, and then became you know, part of the landscape by the 50s, now, there was a lot of complaints about it from the usual suspects, but not outrage. You can read the Fortune magazine from the 50s talking about how, well, you know, CEOs don't live the kind of lifestyle they used to, but that's okay. And if you look at things like the rise of the union movements and in the 19th century, Union organizers were gunned down by, by Pinkertons, but in the 30s and 40s, that didn't happen. They had the backing of a sympathetic federal government, and we got to a much better place, at least for a while. So it could be achievable to fix the inherited wealth issue and ensure that massive amounts of money aren't being passed along to rich kids with very little taxes being collected on it. If you want to enjoy all the cool stuff we have in the United States, like the Grand Canyon and cronuts or whatever, you need to pay for the privilege. I do, and almost all of you out there listening probably do. But to be clear, fixing our system that allows the wealthy to take advantage of the rest of us is going to be real tough. Yeah, no, unfortunately there is no simple fix. So what my strategy is, but I, I admit it's not an easy one and it's difficult to sustain over time, is that you identify basically the key points where current asset holders, capitalist wealth holders, take really take systematic advantage of the system. You try to close these loopholes and you're trying to bring back more control for democratic self-governance. 
So let's picking and choosing, right? It's basically a fixed menu that you get. If you want to play here, that's the menu that we, we offer. And for certain types of things, we might make an exception. But by and large, if, if, you're, if you're playing on our, in our playground, um, these are the rules of the games. That's the only way in which we can somehow make sure that the broader norms of society will be, will be realized. And I think we have to cut back on some of the really fragile and, and, and risk-producing behaviors, especially in the financial system. So if you are constantly in the mode of trying to protect the system from its self-destruction, then also the politically charged institutions such as central banks and others to govern us don't have the space to think about anything else. So we need more space to self-governance. We need also more forms of self-governance, but, but that's something we have to work on, I think. So why aren't people in the streets with pitchforks? Where's the end inherited wealth movement of 2021? Well, I think that, I mean, I'm not sure I know the answer to that entirely, but it is, it is remarkably difficult to get, you, you might think that, that vast unearned wealth would be a, a flashpoint, would, would lead to a lot of anger. But I think there's two things. One is it, it, much of it's invisible. I mean, it, it, you just don't, there have been some studies on this, and I think most people still have absolutely no idea how wealthy the wealthy are. It's not something you see. I, I myself, some years ago, long before I was working at the Times, I was spent a visiting day at, as an economist at, at Goldman Sachs, and, and at dinner afterwards, everyone was talking about their homes at the Hamptons and going there for the weekend. And even I was, I said, well, that's kind of a long drive, isn't it? And, moment of puzzled silence and well well the helicopter only takes a few minutes and, you know most of us don't realize that that's actually how the other 0.1 percent lives it's much easier to get angry at someone who threatens something immediately in front of you than to get angry at somebody who is in fact appropriating a lot of the resources of society for the purpose of his mansion in the hamptons but it, you don't see it and it doesn't it doesn't it impinge on your life in, in a visible way. I've always wondered why protesters don't go to the Hamptons, but I guess it's because you have to take the LIRR to get there. Anyway, I asked Katerina Pastor the same question. Where are the pitchforks? I think in part because it's so complicated and so complex. And in part also because the, 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 power, the powerful interests and also the way we talk about this in politics is sort of is very often um, a re-legitimization. We basically are confirming our belief that it's actually great to be economically powerful. It's, very, it's wonderful to be a self-made man. It's wonderful to come to get ahead economically. And we try to instill the belief that those who are left behind, it's really their fault. Because in this country in particular, that's I think one of the big dreams of this country is the American dream, is you can come and become anything if you just do it the right way. And of, it's important to maintain this belief to keep the system as is, but you don't really want to touch it. And when you, of course, sometimes people touch it, our former president, this country touched it, but in a way that was also very um, self-serving for himself, basically saying the system is rigged and, and it doesn't work the way you think it works, but that can also, of course, then be manipulated for something very different, not necessarily democratic self-governance, but something else. So it's dangerous and problematic to question the, the belief systems. Of course, people have caught up with the system. We had Occupy Wall Street after the big financial crisis. We had Black Lives Matter. I think people are becoming much more aware of climate change in this country. This wasn't the case 10 years ago, 15 years ago, even amongst 
the young. And I think the COVID crisis in particular also has made quite visible where the power lies, um, including the vaccination and patent debate that we currently have. So I think, I think people are catching up with it, but it's, it, you know, it's not, it's just not the simple, just here's labor and there's capital, and we just fight capital. But these interests are more diffuse. It's hidden behind complex legal structures that hardly anybody fully understands. And if so, the insiders, and they're writing the contracts to which nobody has access. So it's a, it's a difficult system to catch in our imagination to say how it works and what the real problems are and how to fight them. I had one more question for Paul Krugman. Is the kind of wealth we've discussed today a, a, a social disease? Why or why not? Well, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure I know whether to use, whether that's a good metaphor or not. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, a, it's an injustice and it's, a, it's something that weakens us. So maybe in that sense, it's kind of like disease, but just, it just isn't the way things should be. It's not the way we imagine ourselves. And it's, I think if people really did understand just how unequal things are. If they did understand not just how unequal things are, but, but how much of the, the extreme wealth is truly unearned, there would be a lot more backlash. It just, this is, this is we have an idea. There's a, an American idea, there's a democratic idea, which is, of course, never, it's idealized, but the ideal matters. And the fact that so much of our, of what goes on particularly at the top of our society, looks nothing like the idea we have of ourselves. I think that that does, that damages us. That, that makes us a, a worse society. And, the, and it, over the long term, it, it does sort of eat away at the foundations of, of who we're supposed to be. America is supposed to be the place where if you work hard, you can be anything you want to be. That's the American dream. The reality? Well, they call it winning the lottery for a reason. It's hard to believe that in the United States today, we're hitting levels of inequality that rival the years just before the French Revolution. Why? Because we live in a democracy, and in a democracy, we supposedly all exercise a voice over the decisions that get made. What I'm saying is that we got here because of choices, and because of decisions that, at least in theory, we all had a say in. That also means we could make different choices. And the order of things today is by no means the way they necessarily will be in the future. In the not-so-distant past, we had elected representatives who fought to limit wealth and the power of the wealthy. Politicians who acted in the interest of most of us, and not just a few of us. You may have already known that a small fraction of society appropriates a lot of resources for the purposes of mansions and helicopters. But if you didn't know that, you do now. It should make you angry, because of all the things we have to worry about, from the climate crisis to systemic racism to mass shootings, it's this inherited wealth inequality issue that has the clearest set of solutions. And if we addressed the inherited wealth issue, yes, by taxing very wealthy people, we would have a lot more resources to tackle the harder problems. If you remember one thing from the show today, remember this. It doesn't need to be this way. And it just takes enough people caring about making a difference to actually make a difference. A sincere thank you to our guests, James Henry, an economist, attorney, and tax justice activist. Henry is a senior advisor to the Tax Justice Network and a senior fellow at Yale University's Global Justice Program. Paul Krugman, an economist, author of many books, New York Times opinion columnist, Nobel Prize winner, and star of the 2010 film Get Him to the Greek. 
and Katerina Pastor, a professor at Columbia Law School and the author of many books, including, most recently, The Code of Capital, How the Law Creates Wealth and Inequality. And a sincere thank you to you, our listeners. Whether this is your first episode or your 48th, we hope you learned some cool facts and had fun. A big thank you to all of our guests. And of course, to the sometimes corrupt, sometimes inspiring, and constantly fascinating people we cover. Without them, we wouldn't have a show. And we wouldn't have material for season four. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, your host. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. Mona Hassan is our writer. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira and Amanda Earle. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. At Now This, Tina Exaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. If you liked the show, don't forget to rate and subscribe. 